Well, the other night, uh, Marie and I had a, a little talk together, uh, a daddy-daughter moment, if you will. Uh, she's four. You've got to keep in mind she's four, but she was scared of the dark. And uh, so I went into her, and I prayed with her, and then I turned on the hall light uh, for her. I also reminded her that sometimes I'm scared of the dark, uh, which hopefully helps. Maybe that actually terrifies her even more. I don't know. Uh, but, but these are really tender moments um, that you have uh, so, sometimes, especially with your little girl. And a little light oftentimes makes things less frightening, doesn't it? Um, some of you are like this with your salvation. You are so tender in your faith. You're saved, but sometimes really fearful that you might not be. And what I hope happens for you this morning is that the light of truth shines in your heart and gives you more joy and peace and confidence in what Christ has accomplished for you. I want you to experience full satisfaction in Christ, which includes confidence in your eternal security. So maybe that's you, but it might not be you. Maybe you're confident, and I hope that you're confident. Uh, I hope your confidence overflows from your trust in Christ and all that he has accomplished for you. But it's likely that some of you have confidence when you should have fear. Because you're not right with God and you think you are. Sometimes I'm about as sharp as a marble. All right. Uh, I will go running at night, sometimes at 10 p.m. Sometimes I'm still running at 11. And folks, I, I'm telling you, I don't have a death wish. I don't. But uh, I do need to admit that I don't always wear bright clothing when I'm running outside in the dark. Uh, sometimes I run along busy roads. And uh, I never, ever, ever carry a flashlight. Um, some might call this foolish. The other night I was running and things were going really, really well. And I turned off a Hernley onto Route 72, uh, heading south toward my house. And, and I was confident. I was confident. Some, some might say brash. But I was running on the shoulder as cars are whizzing by. And... Uh, I was okay until unexpectedly my left foot dropped off of about three to four inch little ledge that was there and I turned my ankle and smack, I bit the dust. I fell right out. I banged my arm. I scraped it up a little bit. It was still some marks and I got a little road rash on my leg. Um, and this is not the first time that that's happened. Well, I got up and I limped for a little bit. I was like, oh, man. I don't know if someone saw me. They had to have been dying in the car laughing. I don't know. But anyway, I got up and limped for, for a little bit, excuse me, until I could jog again. And uh, so I do assure you, I do want to live. Um, but some of you are like this spiritually. You are ignoring the danger you're in because you're convinced that you're okay with God. You've never truly surrendered your life to Christ. You don't know the gospel. 
You're not living a life of holiness, yet you rest assured that everything is okay for you. That everything is good. You should not be confident. You should be terrified of the wrath of God because it's heading your way. And what I hope happens for you if you're in that category is that your heart will awaken to the truth this morning of your spiritual state that you would repent of your sins and turn to Christ in faith and start living for Christ a life of holiness. Because that's what true Christians do. They live for Christ a life of holiness. And so I want you, I want all of you to be happy and to experience true assurance of salvation rooted in God's effectual and sovereign grace in your life. I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to go through life thinking things are okay when they're not. I want you to be most joyful. We're going to spend most of our time this morning in verses 35 through 40 on Jesus' doctrine of eternal security, or what theologians call perseverance of the saints, or you could say it another way, preservation of the saints. It's a, it's a big, huge, massive, important doctrine, so let's get started. Unbelief lacks good sense. Unbelief lacks good sense. As Jesus performed a colossal miracle for the crowd, they had the audacity to ask him this question. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you. What, what work do you perform? Are you kidding? I mean, what had he just done? This crowd is relentless in their unbelief. Didn't the same crowd say earlier in verse 15, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world? Now, this is what they were looking for. Verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's probably a quote from Psalm 78, 24. Now they're thinking back to when God fed Israel with manna in the wilderness for over 40 years as they hiked through the wilderness. And the manna was to remind them that God was the Lord their God. The manna was a sign that pointed to something. Now the crowd is basically telling Jesus... How about you do a miracle that rivals the miracle Moses did in the wilderness? How about you do something of that magnitude, 40 years, bread every day, and maybe we'll believe you? That's what they're looking for. And they're, they're essentially saying, well, he brought bread from heaven. You just multiplied bread you already had. Well, they didn't even recognize that uh, Moses didn't even give Israel the manna. God did. This is stone-cold unbelief in the face of all good sense. Jesus affirmed that God gave it to them and not Moses in verse 32. And they were, if you think about it, these people were hard-pressed for some bread. I mean, my goodness. Unbelief is the most wicked an evil and unreasonable sin there is. It's treason against God. It's rejecting the better manna. The bread of God gives life to the world. Jesus corrected them about Moses in verse 32 and then said, my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. God gave the manna to Israel, but later he sent down another kind of bread, the true bread from heaven. The manna pointed to something greater. Jesus said the Father gives a superior bread, a life-giving bread. 
true bread. In fact, the bread of God, which is He who comes down from heaven and gives life. Jesus is referring to Himself, a person. He is better. He is the eternal life-giving manna. Well, what they heard in His words was bread that gives life. And that's about all they heard, it seems. They ignored that the bread is He, a person that has descended from God in heaven to give life. They just wanted Panera bread, not God, if you follow me there. So they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Well, of course they want free bread, but they also want Jesus to keep giving them free bread. Now, we often try to gratify our deepest desires with too small pleasures. They wanted bread so they never would be hungry again. We get that. But, but they wanted bread that wouldn't satisfy a deeper hunger that they had. If Jesus came only to give physical bread, though full, we are still in our sins. Charles Spurgeon said that they were praying still for bread, but not for grace. They turned to something small when they needed something infinitely massive. And we do this too. When we eat bread and when we eat food, we can, we can taste it. We can smell it. We can feel it. It's, it's so real right there in front of us. And so we run to uh, physical and sensory pleasures, but it takes an act of God's sovereign grace to awaken our spiritual senses to much greater pleasures. John 6 is an example of Uh, tasting ordinary things in order to please a palate that only God can please. When I was a kid, my brother locked me in our family cellar for six hours without food and water. I'm just kidding. He didn't. And I so wish he was here. That line only works if he's here. All right. He didn't do it, but my sister did. No, no, she didn't, she didn't, she didn't. We didn't even have a cellar growing up, but imagine if one of them locked me in a cellar, just for the humor of it. The key to getting out of the cellar is not inside the cellar. It's outside the cellar. Someone has to come down into the cellar and pull me out of the cellar. The bread of God came down and gave life. And the bread of life satisfies forever. The bread of life satisfies forever. Jesus had to flat out tell them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. They just weren't getting it. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is one of Jesus' I am statements, a series of divine claims. He's essentially saying, I am God. I give food that lasts into eternity. I am that food. I am the bread. I am God in the flesh giving life to everyone who comes to me. He said this after miraculously feeding them. And so there's a strong connection with what's going on in this this narrative. The meaning of the miracle was Jesus is the bread of life that can satisfy the hunger of the soul. Come, believe, and be satisfied forever. 
Now, do we still hunger and thirst in this life? Sure, for a lot of things. But every craving we have in this life communicates our incessant need of satisfaction in God. There is a reason we keep getting hungry for food. We keep getting hungry because food doesn't finally satisfy us. God does. Sex doesn't finally satisfy. God does. A vacation doesn't finally satisfy. God does. And when you deeply desire something, as we all do, don't ignore it. Instead, stop and ask yourself why it's there. Good desire or bad, examine why you crave. And whatever your desire is, I'll tell you why you crave. Because you will never be satisfied until you are finally in the presence of God, beholding the fullness of His glory. We can't arrive at full satisfaction here. We, we have full satisfaction in Christ, but that is only brought to its natural end at the coming of Christ in the, in the end. But in this life, there's still these weird cravings that we have for things. And the reason that that is is because we will not find final satisfaction until we are in the full presence of God beholding His full glory. It's coming. The forever joy and satisfaction of your soul is conditional upon you coming by faith to Jesus. Jesus said, whoever comes, you have to come. The language of the Greek in verse 35 is an emphatic negative. Whoever comes to Jesus will absolutely not hunger, is the sense of it. Whoever believes in Jesus will absolutely never, ever, ever thirst. And yet Jesus speaks haunting Words to the crowd in verse 36 as the answer to their question in verse 30. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Seeing miracles is not the solution for unbelief. Something better is. And that's what I want to turn to for the rest of our time this morning. What causes someone to come to Jesus and be satisfied? You could ask that question another way. What causes someone to believe in Jesus and be satisfied? And I want to say, hold on to your seats, because Jesus uses radical language for the rest of chapter 6. His words hold the power to both comfort the tender of faith, while striking fear in the souls of lukewarm, falsely assured, professing Christians who are not Christians. To the one, his words say, rest in my grace. And to the other, he says, come to me and my grace. Here we go. Everyone who comes to Jesus comes because, number one, God gives them to Jesus. Number two, God wills for them to come to Jesus. And number three, God has secured them in Jesus. God gives, God wills, God secures. God gives, God wills, God secures. The sovereign grace of God is behind each person who comes to Christ. So let's see that in the text. Number one, God gives. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 39, Jesus said he would lose nothing of all that God gave him. 
If you have come to Jesus for your full satisfaction, it's because God gave you to Jesus. The Bible calls those who come God's chosen, God's elect. Later in chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus said, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Then in John 17, 2, Jesus mentioned the authority God gave him to give eternal life to all whom God had given him. Then in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Then verse 9, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Who did Jesus say belongs to God? Those whom the Father gave him. Then verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Who does Jesus desire to be with him and to behold his glory? Those whom the Father gave him. Can you see that God gives? God gives. All the elect come to Christ for satisfaction because God gives them to Christ. In verse 37, the giving is present tense and the coming is future tense. Now you're like, oh no, grammar. It's back. I can't escape it. I thought I graduated. No, pay attention. This is really easy. Present tense, giving, coming, future tense. So two things are true in verse 37. Number one, God's giving precedes coming. Therefore, his giving causes the coming. And number two, God's giving secures the coming. All that God gives will come, Jesus says. That's the logic of verse 37. Now on to number two, God wills. Everyone who comes to Jesus comes because God has willed for them to come. Notice verse 37 is followed by a powerful little word, for. Why do all of them come? Why does Jesus never cast them out? Verse 38, for or because I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the what? The will of him who sent me. Now look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me. What is God's will? He's about ready to tell us. Jesus said that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. God willed for them to come and be saved and find their satisfaction in Christ. And God wills for His Son to lose none of them, but for all of them to be secure. One of the core values at Jerusalem Church is sovereign grace. Because God's will and purpose always, always stand. Nothing can frustrate the will and purpose of God. God said in Isaiah 46, 10 and 11, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. 
That is our sovereign and omnipotent God. Psalm 135.6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth. Something doesn't make sense here on earth. God will, as He pleases, accomplish His will. On earth. Just as it is in heaven. Every square inch of the universe and therefore our lives as part of that universe is governed by the good and God-pleasing will of God. Now, some find fault with what I'm saying, with what I think, what Jesus is saying. Some find this offensive. Christians in America have lauded the will of man for so long and with such intensity that many have become cynical toward the sovereign will of God enough to call the word of God into question. The Bible is clear People come to Christ because God chooses for them to come. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So those who come have been chosen by God before creation. He continues... That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, in love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. According to, pause there. Now at this point, so many Christians answer Paul according to the will or choice of man. Many Christians believe that God looks into the future to see whether someone will choose Him and based on that choice in the future that they would make, He predestines them based on that choice. So many Christians believe this. And yet, what does Paul say? He doesn't say anything about that. This is what Paul says. Here is verse 5 again. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to, what does Paul say? The purpose of His will. People come to Jesus because God wills them to come. Paul happens to agree with Jesus. And Paul's not done. He says in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. And then verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. So we receive that inheritance by coming to Jesus. If you come to Jesus this morning, you have a grand inheritance promised to you. But you have to come in order to receive the inheritance. But Paul continues, Having been predestined according to, according to, he's going to tell us, what does Paul say? The purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. From Genesis to Revelation, all that you see in the scripture is God accomplishing his sovereign will. That's the whole Bible. Number three. God secures. Oh, how precious these points are. God secures. Everyone whom God gives to his son will come and persevere until the end. Everyone who comes, truly comes, will make it. All who truly come are eternally secure in God's grace. This doctrine will give you assurance and peace and comfort during 10,000 sleepless nights. 
If God is gracious and powerful enough to save you, he is also gracious and powerful enough to keep you saved. Jesus taught this. Verse 30, 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, in the Greek, there are two double negatives used in verse 35, where two different words for not come together. For emphasis, not, not, just to make sure that we understand, not going to happen, all right? Whoever comes to me shall not, not hunger. They're not going to hunger, ever. They absolutely will not hunger. Look at the second double negative. Whoever believes in me shall not, not thirst ever, is basically what it's saying. Or shall never, ever, ever ever, at any time, thirst again. Jesus is very confident in his ability to satisfy all the longings of the human soul forever. Now verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. When he says will come, that's a certain future. It will happen. But Jesus also said that he will never cast them out. And Jesus is using a figure of speech here called a lightetes. Now stay with me. You're like, lightetes, was he a philosopher back in the Aristotle? No, 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 no. Lightetes, figure of speech. Here's a good example. When you say, well, that's not bad at all. That's a negative way of saying that something is good. That's not bad at all. That's a lightetes. When Jesus said, I will never cast out, it's the same as saying, whoever comes to me, I will always keep in. I will always keep in. Our eternal security is sealed by the preserving and keeping grace of Christ. In other words, it's the powerful grace of Jesus, not willpower, not you just putting on your boots, heading out and making it happen spiritually. It's not what it says. The keeping power is His grace. Jesus said in verse 39 that the will of God was that he should lose nothing of all that God gave him. Jesus doesn't lose people. Why? Because Jesus always does the will of his Father at all times. He never fails. None that God truly gives to him will be lost. All will be raised. Listen to how Jesus makes it absolutely certain in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. God secures precisely because God wills and God gives. Jesus said in John 10, 29, that no one is able to snatch His sheep out of the Father's hand. Doesn't that just comfort you this morning? His grip of His grace is so strong, nobody can pry us out if we truly have come. Now, at this point, at least two objections come up because people start squirming in their seats and uh, I think it's fair, so we need to deal with them. The first is that all of us probably know someone who professed faith in Christ, appeared to live it, but in the end just fell away. 
walked away from the faith. And therefore, many conclude, see, you can lose your salvation. My buddy, my neighbor, my cousin. The second objection is, if salvation is secure and cannot be lost, then we can live like hell and still be saved. Both objections have a simple yet rational and biblical answer. But first, we must understand genuine conversion, what it means to be truly saved. Because without that, the, the object, it's just not going to make sense. True conversion is when someone is crucified with Christ and Christ lives in them. God makes them a kinekathesis, a new creation. He gives them a new heart. They are rewired. Jesus gave a great definition of conversion in John 3, which we did months ago. Unless one is born again, born of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. To be generally saved is to be born again. Conversion is not words that you say. It's not a prayer that you pray. Why do so many reduce conversion to that? It's just not biblical. And conversion is not even a change of lifestyle. It's not even a change of lifestyle. Similar to repentance, an atheist can stop swearing or abusing alcohol or cheating on his wife. But conversion isn't the cause of that change. Maybe it's discipline, maybe it's guilt, maybe it's something else. Could be a whole host of reasons. Misunderstanding conversion can give people false security that they are saved when in reality they are not. So let's handle it. Objection number one, the professing Christian who has left the faith. Jesus dealt with this in Luke 8, 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. These people are enthusiastic about Jesus. They're wearing the I love Jesus t-shirt. They have the bumper sticker, honk if you love Jesus. They're enthusiastic. They profess Christ, maybe for many, many years. But Jesus continued, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Why do they fall away? They never had roots. They never had roots. They never had genuine saving faith, which is enduring faith. So they fell away. Something else is in that parable that's important for us to understand what Jesus means. There was only one genuine good soil. Those who hold the word of God fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Good soil always, always holds fast to the word of God and bears fruit because they have roots. They have a good heart, meaning a grace-changed heart. Enduring faith is fruit of genuine conversion. And so if you don't have the enduring fruit, you just back it up and say, no genuine or true conversion. They haven't truly been changed. What does Luke 6, 43 and 44 say? No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. Sometimes you read the Bible, it just smacks of simplicity. Profound simplicity. You're like, I know exactly what that's saying. 
You just can't twist. How do you twist that? It says what it says. So are you tracking with me here of what, of what Jesus is teaching? I heard a story recently of a missionary who was on the mission field and he slept with 18 prostitutes on the mission field. So his pastors get wind of this. They lovingly confronted him. They pleaded with him repeatedly. But he ultimately left his wife and kids Left the church, left the faith, hasn't returned as of 2012. The last thing he said to his pastors was, quote, I just got tired of fighting the temptations. I just got tired. I'm finished. I'm finished. It's just too hard. This Jesus thing is too hard. I'm just giving up. He gave himself to lust. This is Luke 8, 13. In time of testing, they fall away. He had no root. He had no genuine saving faith. For more examples, you can check out Matthew 7, 21 through 23 and 1 John 2, 19, among others. The point is really this. All who truly come to Jesus are secure and will never fall away. Because the grace that justifies is the same grace that sanctifies and glorifies. God's saving grace is God's keeping grace. Objection number two, eternal security is a license to sin. You give people that hope and what are they going to do? I'm living it up, baby. Woo, we're going to throw a party this Friday night because I am saved and I will die in a state of grace. Paul addressed this in Romans 6, 1 and 2. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And the answer is, we can't. We don't. We won't. 1 John 1, 6 adds, if we say, and, and you know folks, it's so easy to say, I love Jesus. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Anyone who says, I'm a Christian, I said the pride, I did the thing, I was baptized, I'm a member of the church, I read my Bible, I pray. But walks in the darkness, that just means they're living in sin, they're not repenting. They're not turning, forsaking their sin. They're just living in sin. And anyone who says that, they're a liar. It's just words, folks. Here's the point. The grace that saves you is the same grace that gives you the enduring desire and fruit of obedience. It will be there for the Christian. God's saving grace is God's holiness-producing grace. So the answer to the question is, what causes someone to come to Jesus and be satisfied? That answer is, God gives, God wills, God secures. God gives, God wills, God secures. God's sovereign grace is behind all who come and are satisfied. Now, as your pastor, I want you to know I love you. I have a deep love for you. That love is growing. It's not a perfect love, but I love this congregation And I want you to be rightly confident in your salvation. Rightly confident. 
in your relationship with Jesus and where you're going to spend eternity. I want you to just enjoy what Christ has done for you, to be happy in that, to enjoy it and just bask in that with with Christian freedom that just liberates your soul to be so happy you just can't contain it some days. And, And some of you I know will wrestle with eternal security, the assurance of salvation. And I understand your struggle, I really do. And I want you to enjoy your eternal security because right now you might not be like enjoying it and, and you're saved and yet you're like doubting it and, and, and I want you to enjoy that and I want you to be most happy in Christ and, and I want you to know that I see the fruit of good works and obedience in many of you. It's precious fruit. Delight in what Christ has eternally secured for you. Jesus will not let you go. Jesus will not cast you off. He will not let you slip beyond his grace. You will not give up because Christ will keep you in his sovereign grace. It's God's will that he keeps you in his sovereign grace. You will endure until the end. Take hope in that, dear Christian. But I must also lovingly share with you that I am concerned for some of you. You may know the words. You may have said the prayer. You may be a member of Jerusalem Church, but I fear you don't really know Jesus Christ. And I plead with you like Paul pleaded with the Corinthians, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Test yourself. Do you love Jesus most? Can you just be honest with yourself? Do you love Jesus most? It's not a hard question. Does your life clearly show that you love Jesus most? Because if it doesn't, do you see where I'm going with that? It might mean you don't value him the most. Isn't that a logical conclusion? Ask yourself this. Is growth in holiness really, really, really important to you. Like the cry of your heart. I just want to be more like Jesus. You wake up in the morning, map, map, hit it, 10 minutes. Map, map, then you get up. All right, if you're like me sometimes. Sometimes it's like one, two, three, seven hours later. No, no, no. It's Tuesday? No. Um, If growth and holiness is not really that important to you and you're like, look, I'm just good, man. Status quo to the end. Or mediocrity to the end. I I don't think you're saved. Whether you're tender or overconfident, wherever you're at this morning, the message is the same. Not only will the bread of life satisfy you, but it will keep you satisfied forever if you come, if you come. Faith and lasting joy and pleasure is indivisible. I'll leave you to consider this. Uh, what people, uh, when people talk about job security, that's something that you, you might hear now and again, they often think of the knowledge and the experience and the skills of an employee that an employee possesses that keep them secure in that job. In other words, the job is theirs to lose, okay? But if our eternal security is based upon our own morality or spiritual acumen, 
then I don't think we're very secure. I'm not very secure. But our morality is not the foundation of our eternal security. Our security is based on the knowledge, experience, and skills of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our security is Him. It's a person. Jesus prevents the pink slip from ever coming to you. When you open it up, it's just real grace. It's just pure, unmerited grace. No pink slip ever if you truly come to Him. Let's pray. Father, your, your word is so clear. Uh, it, it's convicting. Some of us are probably like, man, oh days, this is hard. And some of us are probably like, man, is Christ ever amazing. I love him even more after that sermon because I am secured in his grace. And so I pray, God, that you will do a massive movement of grace here by your Holy Spirit in people to speak to them exactly what they needed to hear. God, if they are tender of the faith and they sometimes doubt their salvation, but you've saved them, I pray that they leave here with more confidence they ever have, that they are eternally secure in the grip of your grace. And maybe that person came in here thinking everything is okay and now they have this haunting feeling inside of them. I pray they do one thing. They come to Christ. They believe. They trust. And that they find their satisfaction in Him so that they can now say, I am eternally secure in the grip of His grace. I just pray that you work all that out, God, by by your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to uh, end.